My guest today is Professor Nir Barzilai, who is a geoscientist, which means that he studies the biology of aging. He is director of the Institute for Aging Research at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and scientific director of AFAR, American Federation for Aging Research. In his book, Age Later, he argues that aging is a condition that can be prevented or slowed down. And that's great to hear because we all want to live longer and age later. The concept of living a long and fruitful life has been humanity's perpetual dream. There is a traditional Italian cheer, centanni, which means till 100 years. And Jewish people wish each other to live till 120, which is supposedly how long Moses lived. Alas, only very few people have been able to celebrate their centennial birthday, and that's why we call them centenarians. My grandmother, who was a Holocaust survivor, almost made a centenarian club. She celebrated her 99th. As part of his work, Professor Barzilai studies families of centenarians and their genetics to learn how the rest of us can benefit from their super-aging and longevity abilities. He also runs a clinical trial that is testing a specific drug that may slow aging. I am Lena Zeldovich, and this is Making Sense of Science. Professor Barzilai, welcome to our podcast. Making sense of science. Yeah, th thank you, thank you for inviting me. My my name is Nir from now on. Sounds good. So Nir, why do we age, and do we have to? Are there options? That, that that's that's a great that's a great question. I, I mean, I like the second one more. No, we don't have to age the way we do if if your parents told you age is inevitable maybe they meant dying you know i don't think that we can stop dying but aging the way it is where we accumulated after the age of 60 disease after disease and treatment after treatment and interacting treatments i don't think this is uh, what we need to do we know a lot about the biology we we can target this biology, we can delay, we can delay aging, we can uh, sometimes even stop and, and reverse aging in certain example, and we don't need to do that. Now, for the first question, why do we, why uh, do we age? Well, you know, I think we all see it. Aging is biology, right? I mean, you know who's old and who's young. Um, this biology is really the results of something that happens in your cells and then your organs and it affects your whole body and we and when i say we we're geroscientists we have established what we call hallmarks of aging hallmarks of aging are what goes wrong and if we fix it in animals do we get an increased health span and lifespan and we have several of those hallmarks and all those hallmarks can be targeted and this is, you know, very important in why we age, and this is in very important in why we don't have to age. Interesting. So what causes aging and what does aging cause to our bodies? What happens in our body as we get older? Why do we get old and sick? So, so uh, the, reason, the reason we get old and sick is because we age. The reason we age is because those hallmarks that represent those the, the aging process 
has uh, taken over for us. And I don't want to go specifically, but for, for example, one of the hallmarks is immune decline. And, and you saw that during COVID, uh, if you were over the age of 80, you had 200 times more chances of dying than if you were 20, right? So immune decline is a, an example. Your metabolic decline is in, a, an example. Your, de- your way to deal with proteins is one, to, with your mitochondria, with your DNA fracture. So we, we kind of have this biology and we can uh, make difference by targeting this biology. So a few things go wrong, just like what happens in the old with the old car and the old cars can be fixed and tuned and what you're saying is that the same thing can theoretically be done to people but but more important than that you know what we're saying is that aging causes diseases it, people kind of intuitively think we get disease and that ages but that's not the way it goes aging this biology go to, uh, causes diseases and we've shown that if we target aging before diseases, then we can delay these diseases or prevent them altogether. So our our, uh, um, effort to create a new history, right, is let's target this aging process so that we don't get a disease. And if we don't get a disease, we live, you know, in a better quality of life and, and much, much longer too. Right. So in your book and in your work, you actually argue that aging itself is a disease. And for most of us, it's a surprising thought. I think for most of us, you know, we see it as an inevitable natural progression of life. And while we may have some power to fight it with healthy diets and exercise, all in all, there isn't much we can do. Mother Nature runs its course. Years go by, we get old. But you view it as a condition, as a disease, and diseases can be treated. So... How does it work? So, so you know, I, I, I don't really... So I think that aging is the mother of all diseases. Okay, that's what I told you, because aging caused the disease. But I don't want to call aging a disease, or let's say not yet. And, and the reason is that, first of all, not everybody who's old has a disease. And it's really important because you saw what happened with COVID. The elderly people were isolated. They were sent into islands. <laughs> they couldn't interact. They were, they were lonely. So the elderly people don't want to be called sick. And the ARP doesn't want to call aging a disease. And the American Federation for Aging Research, I'm their scientific director, doesn't want to talk call aging a disease. But what, what we figured out with the FDA that we don't have to call names, okay? We are trying to do a study where we're going to show that we give a gerotherapeutics, right? We need, we give something that slows aging and a whole variety of disease is going to be prevented. If we do that, we can call, we can call it aging. They can call it whatever they want, but we'll know what it is. Um, so I don't think we, we want our clients to be with us. We don't want to antagonize them. So what I'm saying is, yeah, I think aging is a disease, but I don't think it's important to say that or frame that. We just want people to know that there is an alternative to what's happening now to accumulating disease and the bad quality of life. 
I see. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about centenarians. So you study centenarians, people who live till 100 and past 100. They live longer. Does it, however, mean that they are sick for longer? So we're just talking about living longer in pain, suffering, misery, or are they actually healthier than other elderly people? What do you see in your research? Right, and and that was really very important when we started this research and we have like 750 families of centenarians. The the first thing was on on our mind is, do they get disease when we get disease and now they're just living sick longer or is their health span and lifespan goes together? And, And it goes together. They get diseases 20, 30 years after other people get disease at at the same cohort. But so they live healthier, not only longer, but that's not the important thing even. The important thing is that they have what we call a contraction of morbidity. They're sick very little time at the end of their lives. They live, 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 live and die. 30% of our centenarians don't have any disease. They don't take any drug and some of them will just not wake up one morning. So this is really to show you that there are people who are healthy, 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 and they die after a short time, which is kind of the framework that we're sticking to. Mm-hmm. And that's what we all dream of happening to us. We just want to not wake up one morning, live a long, healthy life, and then just not wake up one morning. So um, they definitely have um, certain advantages over the rest of us. So what what is that? From reading your book, I know that you traced this down to the so-called longevity genes. What are they and why some people get them and others don't? Right. So, um, so it, it, you know, we had few hypotheses of why those guys live longer. For example, one of them that was that maybe they do what we all should do in relation to exercise and and um, uh, nutrition and sleep and social connectivity. And that didn't happen to be right. In, in fact, 60% of our centenarians have been smoking and, and, and 50% were overweight or obese and, and uh, physical activity, less than 50% did even mild physical activity, like just walking. So that's not it, but we had another hypothesis. And by the way, all of us should do those things, but they didn't need to do this thing. You know, I always tell about Helen Kahn, who was a sister of four siblings that lived over the age of 102, and she died at 110. And when I met her first in her New York apartment, she was standing at the door and she was smoking. And I said, Helen, nobody told you to stop smoking. And she said, you know, all four doctors that told me to stop smoking, they died. And the point is, yeah, if you if you smoke for 90 years, you live long life, but that, that's not going to work for the majority of us. For, for, for us, it means that they were protected. They were protected against the effect of aging because their aging was slow or Helen's aging was slow. I still argue that maybe if she wasn't smoking, she could live 10 more years, but, but you know, but that's what happened to her. Um, now, the second hypothesis was maybe, you know, we have genetic variants for that are risk for cardiovascular disease and for cancer and for Alzheimer's and for diabetes. So maybe those guys don't have though any of those, like they have the perfect genome. And we found out that it's quite the opposite. They have 
just as many bad variants as the as the rest of us and and we have even centenarians who have a, a genotype that a change in their dna that's called apoe4 that is a major risk for alzheimer you usually get alzheimer when you're 60 or 70 and you die when you're 80 and they're 100 years old and they don't have alzheimer so it's not that what we did find is variety of of genes of functional mutations that are helping them to really slow their aging. Um, one, of, one of the, you know, the, the one that is really most prominent is, is a, a variety of changes in the gene, not every time in the same place, but variety of, of, of changes in the pathway for growth, for growth hormone. And, and in all cases, it's functional. In other words, the growth hormone doesn't work there. And, and, and let me explain why it's so important. First, first of all, in nature, all the small models live longer. You know, the little dogs live longer than the big dogs and the ponies live longer. And, and people who are born dwarf have no age-related diseases. And, uh, and when, when we do things with animals in the lab and we knock out their growth hormone or knock in the growth hormone, when they don't have growth hormone or not enough growth hormone, I should say, they live longer. Um, and this is why, because at a certain age, okay, at a certain age, when you age, you start the breakdown of aging. And it doesn't make sense to spend the energy in growth. You have to shift the energy to deal with growth, with, with the breakdown. And if you mix it up and you start growing at the same time, you're just going to increase the damage. So, so this is kind of the, the philosophy of why it happens. And we actually showed it in other big studies that that's kind of the case. So the most important thing is to target the growth in our centenaries, but they have other, there's few ways to get to 100, not only that. So what are the most common longevity genes then, and what do they do? Or maybe I should ask, what are the most common longevity mutations? Right, so, right. so longevity gene is just a figure of speech. When we're saying longevity genes, it's, it's not that you have your own genes and some of us have longevity genes, but some of your genes have alterations, and those alterations actually cause them to, fa to function either better or worse. It's, it's usually worse. Um, and uh, I just gave the examples of the growth hormone, a variety of genes that are, it's a pathway, there's a variety way, there's no one, there's one growth hormone, but there are many growth hormones. So. Uh, so I'm, I'm just generalizing saying growth hormones. Um, but for example, one of our uh, prominent uh, genes where genes that, that are targeting cholesterol, but not the bad cholesterol, not what's known as the LDL cholesterol, but the good cholesterol, which is the HDL cholesterol. And also not only the cholesterol, but triglycerides, which are another fraction of our lipid that goes up in a certain situation and shouldn't go up. And our centenarians have, a, a, a lot of our centenarians have mutation in those genes and we can, 
we could have predicted that because they have unusual level of HDL, good cholesterol, and low level of triglycerides uh, cholesterol. Interesting. So for most of us, the word mutation in the genes signals something scary, you know, cancer, autoimmune disease, uh, um, uh, neurodegenerative diseases. But it almost sounds like some of these mutations is like winning a genetic lottery. Right. You're absolutely right. And this was kind of cool for us because uh, genetic, you know, you have to be aware of when you find genetic findings, you need the genetic counseling. What are you going to do with that? And we're like the new kids in the block saying, oh, we, we're looking for good genes, not for bad genes. And it's kind of confused lots of people, but allowed us to make uh, progress. And And this is although some of the same people with the longevity genes have also very bad genes, <laughs> but it didn't matter to them. But 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 you're right. I, I, there's another thing that, that people assume that if we find some genetic variants, that means that, that the treatment is genetic treatment. But this is not true. In fact, two thirds, two thirds of the uh, FDA approved drug in the last year were based on genetic finding, but the treatment is not genetic. You find, you find, uh, you develop a drug that will imitate exactly what this mutation is doing. And that's what we've done in all those examples. We have drugs for the growth hormone and for the HDL and for the c 3 We have drugs that are already that phase three trial or were in human studies and were adopted to that. Okay, so going back to what we kind of mentioned in the beginning, so aging can be targeted, meaning treated or slowed down. Um, so I know that you ra- you're running a metformin study you're called TAME, um, targeting aging with metformin. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more what you know by now about that study? And then maybe we can talk about other potential new medications. Sure. So uh, metformin was a drug. It's an extract of the French lilac, but it's not nutraceutical. It's ma- manipulated. So you need a prescription. And in the 19th, 20s and 1950s, metformin or or cousins of it were actually treated to prevent arthritis or to treat arthritis to prevent flu and malaria and other things. And then it was noticed that it lowers glucose, but in diabetic patients. So then, then, and maybe luckily, it went to diabetes. And because it's diabetes and diabetes disease, there are lots of studies with metformin. And then we noted that people on metformin had less diabetes, had less cardiovascular disease, had less cancer, less Alzheimer's, uh, less mortality. And those are also in clinical studies, okay, in control studies. And uh, people thought, well, because it lowers glucose, but it, it's not. You know, you can treat diabetes in other ways and you're not going to get the same results. Also, metformin seemed to be more effective in diabetes to do those things than lowering glu- than people even people who didn't have diabetes in other words it decreased mortality even people who didn't have diabetes so metformin was very special and we decided to use it as a tool because there's so much data to use it as a tool and demonstrate to the fda that this is a drug that can target the biology of aging and 
prevent like a cluster of age-related diseases. So we don't care, we are agnostic, not that we don't care what disease you have. I mean, if you're in the trial and your mother was diabetic and you're obese, you'll get diabetes. But you know, but then you get other disease, you'll accumulate the disease. And we're, we're going to show that for every disease, you're going to get a point. And we'll show in a five-year study that we prevent or, or delay with metformin this bunch of age-related diseases. Interesting. And what are other drugs that you're looking into that may slow down aging or, you know, work as this preventative mechanism or replace the function of a gene that those of us who didn't win the genetic lottery don't have? Right. So, so there are two FDA drugs that are in, in you know, are being used by a, lo a lot of patients. The one that is used really by a lot of patients is a class of drugs that's called SGLT2 inhibitors. They're, they also were developed for uh, to treat diabetes, but um, it, it became apparent that in diabetes, the diabetic patient, then even in not diabetic patient, those that take the drugs, it decreased their heart diseases and their kidney diseases and overall mortality. And also when you give them to animals, they also live longer, okay? So, so this is an example of the drug that may, may be repurposed for aging. Another drug that's very famous is called rapamycin. Uh, rapamycin is used uh, as immunosuppressor in a, in a high dose. Actually, in a low dose, it's immunomodulator. It's actually increasing, increasing your ability to deal with infection, but it also does other things. It also targets all, all those hallmarks of aging. And when you give it to animals, that's the drug that at least in animals get the biggest effect. Uh, it doesn't mean that in humans it will be the biggest effect, but, but in animals it is. So, um, so, so those are examples. But, you know, I told you that centenarians have this uh, uh, HDL and APOC3 and there are drugs for that. I told you that growth hormone uh, should be, could be antagonized and actually there was a commercial, not a, I'm sorry, not a commercial, there was a, a cancer trial, but many drug companies that developed those antibodies against the, the growth hormone. And it didn't treat cancer, but when we took it to and gave it to animals, they lived longer. So there, there's lots of, you know, I could go on and on, but there's a lot of exciting things going on in developing gerotherapeutics. In other words, give it give to you before you you get uh, diseases and kind of modulate your aging enough so that it'll be much much better um how close are we to actually seeing this concept being brought to the clinic are we five years away or more like 10 years away oh this will happen by august by this august no i'm not saying years <laughs> okay it's like when you renovate your kitchen, you know, they can give you months, but, but you need the years. Look, uh, two things are happening. Well, a lot of things are happening, but there's a, there's a big wave, okay? And, and it's not necessary that the wave is going to accelerate something. At the end, there's still the FDA, right? Uh, 
but uh, you, you know one of the things that's changing i was i was very careful to push metformin you know metformin for me was okay we have this data and i'm going to do this study and only after the study is done you can take metformin i i now think it's ridiculous because uh, metformin has done already everything that we wanted to do and there are tens of millions of people who are taking metformin just to stop their aging. And you can repurpose any drug. And metformin for me, the only real side effect is longevity in my mind. Okay, there's no, and maybe you're not prepared for that. Maybe you're not, you know, maybe you cannot afford that. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, metformin has side effects within the first week of treatment. And if you have diarrhea that persists, after a week of treatment, you shouldn't have metformin, but that's, you know, 3%, maybe 6% of the people. Other people don't feel metformin. They might lose weight. They might feel better. They, people can tell them that they look better, but, but you know, so at a certain time, if, if people like you will have podcasts and people will hear, and they have to hear it three times before they do anything, then, then all of a sudden, the public will say, hey, we, we, you know, there's something. Why wouldn't we do it? We're, we actually don't like aging as, as we see it. Why don't we intervene? That is a very good point. So uh, let's say if today, um, you know, a person over 60 or over 50 goes to a doctor and says, hey, I read about this you know, study uh, that's happening and I read about this drug. Um, it seems that it makes sense for me to take it. Would they get a prescription or not really? Because the guidelines, there's no guidelines. So because I told you that now I'm at the stage that I, 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 I cannot, you know, it's like an ethical thing. On, on one hand, as a doctor and a researcher, I want everything to come out. On the other hand, I'm frustrated because the data is so overwhelming so i'll tell you i'm still not going to prescribe you metformin but if my friends are asking for metformin that's what i do i tell them write the following email to your doctor say i'd like to be on metformin what do you think and attach two papers and by the way i can send you uh, lena the papers and those are two papers that go over the biology and also the clinical data on metformin and I can assure you one of two things will happen. Either the doctor will read the papers or one of the papers or even the abstract and say, gosh, I should be on metformin. And some of them call me, okay? Or the doctor will say, you know, I don't have time for this bullshit, but <laughs> metformin is safe. It's been around. The patient wants it. I'll prescribe it to them. And that, that's for me where, where, where I'm at in New York, that's 100% uh, uh, success. So, so that, that's, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, all right, so outside of metformin, uh, what are the best things we can do to prevent aging? Of course, generally we know that we're supposed to you know, eat healthy, not be sedentary, exercise. But I'm curious that if there are any specific things that you've learned from your research that may be less known to the general public. So, so the, the example that I would give is, is the following example. Look, when I came to this field 30 years ago, one of the first, okay, 
what what did I have? I had this knowledge that if you take animals, you know, mice or rats, and half of the brothers, you give them to eat what they whatever they want, and the others you restrict them to 60% of it, so they get less calories. They would actually live much, much healthier and much longer, like 40% longer. If mice live a little bit more than two years, they would live three years, okay? That was a very interesting observation, and actually a lot of what we know about aging came by understanding uh, uh, this thing. So, so after the studies, people took it as to say, you know, we think that you should have less for breakfast, less for lunch, and less for dinner. But that's not what we did with our animals. What we did with our animals is we came in the morning and we gave them the food for the day. And they were hungry, so they ate all the food for the day within an hour. And then they were fasting for 23 hours. So it's not only caloric restriction, it's also fasting. When we actually give them the food throughout the day, they are thinner, but they don't live much longer. So you need the fasting from an aging perspective. And that's where came the term intermittent fasting or 16, eight hour fasting, which a lot of us are doing. Uh, you know, if I finish eating at eight o'clock in the evening, then I have nothing but uh, water or coffee uh, without milk uh, or sugar until 12, right? Noon, that's exactly 16 hours. When you do it, you can skip several more hours. And this is improving a lot of things. First of all, people feel that, you know, even if in the beginning it's kind of hard and you don't know if you'll be hungry or not, but people are losing weight, in particular men are losing weight. And I think mentally, if, if you gave me a diet for three months, I could, I, could, uh, I could break any day. But if all I have to do is wait an hour or two hours, I'm not going to break, you know, especially when after that, I basically can eat whatever I want. I just eat it, it during an eight hours and not as I used to, 16 hours, I'm eating something here and there. And, and then when I'm, you know, when I'm sleeping, I'm not eating anything. And does that 16 hours, is really 16 hours enough? We don't know. Um, is, uh, is it good for, uh, is, it, is it really good for aging? Well, it changes some metabolic things that are connected to aging. There's no study and maybe there'll never be study that show that you live longer that way or not. The exercise capacity seem to increase. The fogginess that comes sometimes through the, the day happens to uh, to change. What do you think? Well, what I, do I think? Well, so you told me about this, uh, the 1816 breakdown a few months ago. And, you know, I've, I've tried it. Uh, and my husband tried it. And we really like it. It's actually the best diet we ever tried. In my case, I definitely feel a lot less sluggish. I have... A lot more energy my brain works sharper it's very easy to just wait another hour especially if you're working um, and and yeah you can your exercise capacity increases and the most interesting thing is that I think I'm happier I'm in a better mood okay I I, I agree my, my wife and I agree <laughs> agree with you <laughs> and it's funny that we we met in uh, Chile in Valparaiso over lunch right right but 
we were we were fasting the whole time. <laughs> you had breakfast before. Yeah, yeah. So, um, do we know the biological underpinning of why it happens? Uh, you know, when you're fasting, like what what happens? Do some genes turn on? Do we process all this extra? You know, calories and uh, new products of our metabolic system better because you know the body sort of you know, turns on into this I don't know maybe some form of a survival mode okay food's not coming let's clean up do we know well the answer is yes but I'll go back to my line that it changes all the hallmarks of aging okay mm-hmm. which I'm I'm reluctant to say because I don't want to go into bio, bio, bio you know biomedical terms but yes, it does do it for everything we know about aging. It has a very systemic effect. And, um, and, 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 and what you said is true. I mean, what is it, what is it that the fact that it's stress, right? That it stresses you and stress prepares you for better things. It's the same with exercise. You know, exercise itself doesn't make sense. It increases oxidative damage. You know, you have inflammation but still exercise is the best thing you can do to to target to prevent aging uh, and at the end they change all this biology of aging all those hallmarks of aging and extend health span and lifespan so here's a million dollar question so according to some reports starting in 2030 when all baby boomers will be older than 65 old Americans will make up some 21% of the population. And by 2060, nearly one in four Americans will be 65 and older. And the number of people over 85 will triple. Now that can seriously strain government budgets in Medicare because we'll have fewer young people who work and pay taxes and more older people who need more medical care, which is expensive. That begs a difficult question. Can we afford more elderly in our society? Um, my answer is we cannot not do it okay we cannot not afford it in 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 the sense so i i i'll give you two points one is uh you know our centenarians right live live and then they die actually the cdc looked at the medical cost in the last two years of life of somebody who dies 100 at 100 years old Mm -hmm. and it's third from those who die at 70 okay and by the way, at the 100 years old, when they were 70, didn't go to the doctor, <laughs> okay? So we started talking about longevity dividends because if you create those centenarians, the, 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 the gain by, by less medical cost is enormous. But it's more than that because um, uh, Andrew Scott, who's a professor of economy in, in London School of Economy, said, guys, you're out of your mind because you're so tunnel visual. You're, you're looking at the medical expense, but think of it. So this elderly is not in the hospital, right? That's what you're saying. So what is he doing? He's traveling, he's shopping, he's getting things for his grandkids. So there's an economical value, okay, for the people who are there. And by the way, people over 65 own 40% of the economy. So yes, uh, if we calculate the medical value till 2030, it's the number is staggering because healthcare is so is such a big part of us. It it comes up to 360 trillion dollars, and, and or as he said, you know, 
it's 10 times more than needed to actually save global warming. If we had $36 trillion for global warming, we would have had, you know, a major advantage. So the answer, it's, it's the opposite, okay? It's the opposite. If we get to be healthier and die one day, this is going to be a huge boom for the economy. What we're doing now, we cannot afford. Wow, this is absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you for sort of, you know, painting this really bright aging future. You know, the future in which we don't have to suffer, we can live a long life and die quickly. And the future in which we won't have to spend millions of dollars on healthcare because we can sort of do all this preparative work early on. Right, and I just quote you back. When you did just one intervention that wasn't hard, that didn't need medication, and you said, I'm so much better and so much happier, right? So, you know, that's it. We can do even better than that. Terrific. Thanks for checking out the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impacts, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, visit our online magazine at leaps.org where you can read in-depth articles that explore health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Thanks for reading, listening, and most importantly, thinking about what you find on leaps.org. <laughs>